0: Sooner or later, all of us will find ourselves in a scenario like this. We will get the word that somebody that we truly love and care for has been diagnosed with a terminal illness. Or we will learn that somebody that we cherish has just lost a precious loved one to suicide or to a tragic accident, or to a murder. We will hear the news that a baby has miscarried, or a child or a sibling is suddenly dead, or disfigured. Maybe someone discovers that their spouse has been having an affair, or has decided to leave that spouse and we will be brought into the midst of the chaos of that. And the question becomes, what do we do? How do we help? What does it look like to to care for someone in crisis? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, then, then you know that when you hear of news like this, You don't just sit on the sidelines watching. We serve a God whose passion is to bind up the brokenhearted and to strengthen the weak, the scriptures declare. For the Lord comforts people. He comforts his people and has compassion upon the afflicted ones. Jesus said a new command I give you. His marching orders to the church. Love one another, he said, As I have loved you. So bear each other's burdens, writes the Apostle Paul, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Bearing one another's burdens is central to fulfilling the plan of Christ, Paul tells us. If we follow the God who the Bible reveals, then we know that when someone is in crisis, we're meant to help. The more pressing question, I suppose, is how. How do we actually do this? Or more specifically, how do we help without hurting? I asked this particular question because I found that that rendering appropriate care in times of need like this is a very complicated business. For one thing, getting close to people in pain is a tumultuous experience for us. When I was a young pastor, I used to go to the hospital to visit with people. And and, and I would go, and somebody has just had foot surgery. And I would walk out limping. I'd suddenly be aware of this pain I had in my own foot. I'd walk out feeling sick from having been with somebody who was sick. I would be with people who were grieving and I would go around feeling sad. I would, I would visit somebody who was dying and I would be suddenly filled with all of these fears about my own mortality. And I've never gotten over it. I've never gotten over this experience. I can't talk to a, a couple in marital crisis or in parental chaos and not feel pangs of anguish about my own family situations and the needs and worries about my own marriage and my own kids. I can't, I, I can't come alongside somebody who's dealing with some painful result of their own sinful choices and not find myself filled with worry about my own unresolved sin. I have never been able to help somebody without hurting, without feeling in myself something of the pain of human loss and brokenness. I hear others talk about maintaining professional distance from the pain of people in need, but it's very, very hard for me to get there. And I'm not sure that as Christians we're ever really supposed to get there. The Apostle Paul says, love must be sincere. And by that I take it that he means there are things that look like love that are not it that are not sincerely love in the way that God has in mind. Christian caregiving is not a clinical act. Christian caregiving is not something we do from an emotional, professional distance. It is sincere, as in deep and true. It's a sincere entrance into the emotional uh, complexity and the confusion of somebody else's pain. And it is bound to ruffle you up if you go there. In other words, if you're going to get down in the ditch with someone alongside the Jericho Road, as the Good Samaritan did in Christ's famous parable, you're going to get your hands bloody, you're going to get your knees dirty, as, as Jesus himself did, as he got down into the ditch of human experience. If you're going to help people pass through sin or sickness or even death itself, you're going to be pierced by the pain of these things as well as Jesus was. In that sense, I suppose, the deepest kind of helping almost always involves some measure of hurting. And we have to be willing to sign up for it. Maybe that is why some people only sign up partway. Maybe that's why some of us... uh, resort to what I will call safety strategies when it comes to responding to the news that someone else that we care about is in crisis. What I mean by this is that many of us adopt an approach to caring for others that is inclined to either reflect or to support our desire to maintain some emotional safety from all of this mess ourselves. And while that is very understandable, as I've confessed in my own experience, the chief problem with these strategies I'm about to enumerate to you is that they actually hurt the very people we intend to help. By avoiding the hurting ourselves, we end up inflicting a hurting that we never intended to inflict on other people. And the reason I'm even giving you this message is because I've just heard now so many times over so many decades The the confessions of people in crisis about what really helped and what didn't really help in terms of the caregiving that was coming their way. And I heard it one last time just about a month ago and I thought, I've got to talk about this subject. This is such a relevant subject. The behaviors that I have heard people describe who are in pain as unhelpful from other people can be summed up in just three words. And these are them. What people in crisis do not need from us is separation, superficiality, or spiritualizing. They do not need these things from us, even though these very things we use to maintain our own emotional safety. What hurts me most, one man with terminal cancer told me, is the separation I feel from others. People avoid me now, I'm finding. It's like I'm already dead. I, I'm not, but it feels like to them, I, they've written me off. Or a man who had been given notice that he was going to be laid off from his company confided to me, I worked alongside of these people for years. We went out for drinks after work. We had lunch. We shared things on projects. It was a great connection. And now this news has come down that I'm going to be laid off and they won't even look at me in the hallway. They avoid eye contact with me. I'm a leper to them. It's like they feel like if they get close, they might catch unemployment from me. A woman going through a divorce shared the friends we had as a couple no longer call me. You'd think I had divorced them. It is awful enough to have your health or your job or your marriage die, it is agony, an unnecessary agony to be separated from the living. Even when people are not so consumed with their own safety that they stop calling or stop coming around or stop connecting with people in a time of need, the conversations people often have with those in crisis are marked by a kind of superficiality that ends up either wearying or wounding the person who is already in pain. I talked a couple of months ago with a dying man who said to me, what really kills me is how many repetitive, repetitive surface conversations I have. I'm more aware than ever before, he said to me, of what constitutes surface and what contents re- con- uh, consists of reality. And, and, it's, and it's so much surface stuff. In these conversations that I have, I am so tired of answering people's questions about my chemo treatments and about the nature of my condition. Were they not listening the first 30 times I explained it to them? And he was talking about his own siblings who every time they met him, always wanted to go back to talk about this kind of clinical soup, know, give us the details, And it was just wearying. Or they just want to talk about the bears and the weather, he said. I love the bears. The weather is not great, but there are deeper things I wouldn't mind talking about. Like that I'm scared to die. And that I'm, I struggle to even believe in God right now. And about all the things I'm going to really, really miss. And then there are those people who preserve their sense of safety by spiritualizing things with someone in crisis. I guess God needed Joe up there rather than here. Guess he needed him more in heaven than here raising the kids. Or or God must really have a whole lot of confidence in your faith to let you go through this kind of thing. I mean, he says in his word, he'll never give you more than you can handle. He must think you can handle a lot. That must encourage you. Or, you know, God never closes a door without opening a window someplace. Have you heard somebody say something like that? Have you said something like that? The Apostle Paul declares in Romans 12 that we should never be lacking in zeal. That we should keep our spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. I love that verse. I I wrote it out. I put it up on my doorway in seminary. It was my theme verse all through seminary. In another translation, never flag in zeal. Be aglow with the Spirit. Serve the Lord. We're meant to do these things, to be this way. But for some reason, we often conclude that doing this means defending God's providence. Tying it all up, explaining it in neat little packages and formats and cliches. We feel that we need to to issue sermons to people at the point of their deepest pain. Why cannot we just stand with people amidst the mystery and the mess and it is. It's mysterious and it's messy life. I mean, Jesus said this to us. He said, in this world, you will suffer. I never promised you a rose garden. You know that idea? Jesus says this to us. He said, it's going to be messy. Like, human condition is hard. Life is going to be difficult. This you can count on. And you can count on the fact I'll be with you in it. And that I'll be at work in it. Why can't we just stand with people amidst the mystery and the mess, as Christ did? One of my favorite stories in the Bible is found in John chapter 11. You might enjoy reading it for yourself today. In this particular story, Jesus hears the news that his friend Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha, has died. Jesus always stays with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus whenever he's around Jerusalem. He's always at their home in Bethany. And the death of Lazarus is a cataclysmic loss to this family and all who knew him. And and Jesus, you've got to understand, sees Mary and Martha in agony over this loss. And and he knows about the power of God. He knows about a God who can raise people from life, uh, from death, into new life. In fact, he is going to raise Lazarus to new life in about 10 minutes. Maybe half an hour from this particular moment. Jesus also has every appropriate word at his disposal. Jesus has all wisdom and knowledge in his head. He knows the exact appropriate thing that could be said in this exact situation. So what does he say to Mary and Martha as they're in this terrible anguish, as they're literally crying out, why did you let this happen, God? What does Jesus say? Nothing. Jesus wept. He just wept. If we want to offer meaningful help to people in crisis, then we have to be open to taking into our flesh the pain, as Jesus did. We have to push past the temptation to separate ourselves to remain at the superficial level, to try and keep things at a distance by spiritualizing it all. We need to surrender our emotional safety. Once we've done this, we can begin to demonstrate to other people a more sincere kind of love. And Romans 12 in these verses goes on, I think, to give us some, some strategic help with this some sincerity strategies, as it were, that can enable us to give people the kind of care they need. St. Paul says that if we want our love to be sincere, then we ought to hate what is evil and cling to what is good. What's going on in the midst of pain and suffering is a great clarifying about things for people. Most people who are, who are in the midst of suffering will tell you that things get clearer. It becomes more obvious what matters and what doesn't. And if we're still living in this mishmash, la-la land of trivial and superficial and spiritualized and just, we will be weird people to them. And so, hating evil and clinging to good are, are good ideas in the midst of this kind of circumstance. Let me tell you how we do this. There are two great questions suggested by this admonition of Scripture that we could use as guides to ask people when we are with them in a time of crisis. Here's a first question. What feels especially wrong or evil to you about what you're going through? Talk about that with me. People need permission to talk about the darkness. They need to be given an open door to describing their experiences. of of darkness and evil even if it doesn't feel safe to you to listen to it they need to know that you hate what they're going through You, you, you agonize you hate that they're going through this kind of pain a little boy was late in coming home from school one day in fact very late, so late that when he finally walked through the door his mother in anguish cried out to him, what in the world have you been doing all this time? I was so worried. And the little boy explained, I met a kid coming home from school who had his books dumped by bullies. And she said, the mother, it took you this long to help him pick up his books? And the little boy said, no, it took me a very long time to help him cry. We cannot always pick up the pieces that sin and death dump to the ground in people's lives. We can't. But we can assure people when that has happened that they are not alone. As Paul says in Romans 12 and verse 15, sometimes we just need To mourn with those who mourn. A second helpful question to ask somebody in crisis is this one. Where are you seeing any good? Don't describe what you see. Ask them what they see. Help them cling to what is good. A very dear friend of mine passed away recently after a three-year-long battle with a rare blood disease, and one of the things he most enjoyed talking about over that three-year period was what he called the ironic grace of what he'd experienced during his illness. He choked up so often as he would speak of the profound renewal of love he felt for his wife. He'd always loved her. But the experience of this illness deepened that bond at an absolutely awesome level, and it filled him with thankfulness that he'd gotten to this level of of marriage. He he would describe the pleasure that he took in the very simple things of life that he'd always taken for granted before. And he just saw things. Life was luminous to him with beauty and, and goodness. And he would describe the encouragement he felt In the promises of God, even though he trembled sometimes to hold on to them, he was sure glad that they were there. And this was ironic grace, unbidden, unchosen, never would have asked for this to come to me, kind of grace. Grace. The Apostle John writes about this. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The darkness cannot fully overcome the light. Sometimes people just need a little bit of help to spot the light. Sometimes they just need to be invited to reflect, to look around them. And if you let them look for themselves, rather than preaching it at them, they will often be able to discern God's rays. Maybe not at the beginning. Maybe not at the beginning, but eventually. Paul also says, share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Time and again I've heard from people whose life has come unraveled how much these small acts of practical hospitality mean to them. People that have no idea what it means to them. They'll talk about the person who left a casserole by the front door and didn't even bother to knock. Just left it there. It was cold enough in Chicago. It's... It was, it, it kept. Uh, or they'll describe somebody who sent the restaurant gift certificate along with a little note of encouragement. They marvel over the kindness of the person who offered to babysit so they could get away for an evening or maybe even for an entire weekend to think through their circumstances and figure out what they were going to do next. They praise God for the person who invited them out for coffee and just listened again, again, without. Giving any kind of advice. Or somebody helped them think through their options and identify the next step and just created a hospitable circle for that kind of, of thinking. It must be said that sometimes people in crisis need just the opposite of that. Uh, sometimes they they don't need us to come close physically in that particular moment, but just the opposite. They need margin. They need quiet more than anything else. That is especially true at the very end of life for people. When somebody feels so ugly and so out of control and so miserable, they don't need us to stop by. They, they don't. At the, at the very end, they've stopped even worrying about looking so ugly because they just feel so miserable. And, but they don't need us to stop by. The family doesn't need us to be calling and leaving messages on the telephone. Honestly, they don't, need it. they don't need our message on the answering machine. They don't need us to be interrupting, adding to the to-do list when they're focusing themselves on the precious last hours and days. Even when it makes us feel like we've done something. They don't need it. Write them a note. Call a month after the funeral or three months after the eye of the storm has passed, they will need a friend then when the shock wears off. If you want a sincere love to be felt by someone in crisis, be devoted to them with brotherly love, writes Paul. And then here's the key part, honor one another above yourselves. The number one mistake that we often make when trying to render care to someone in crisis is That we do what makes us feel better rather than what would make them feel better. And if you haven't picked it up already from what I've been saying here today, this is a complicated business. When to come close, when to give margin, whether whether to, to, to talk or whether to listen. It's a complicated business. It requires discernment. So here's the simple solution to that. Ask them. What feels like help? What would feel like help to you right now? And then honor those wishes. Most of you are probably aware by now that the Chinese word for crisis is formed by the conjunction of two characters, one that means danger, and the other that means opportunity. Howard Kleinbell, the father of modern pastoral care and counseling, whose words are also quoted on the cover of your bulletin today, says this. A crisis is more than simply a time of danger, pain, and stress to be endured. A crisis is also a turning point a growth opportunity where persons move toward or away from greater personality strength and wholeness. It's been my experience that we often do not know why God allows the breakdowns people suffer. I suppose we know it on a grand level. We're, we know that sin and, 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 and suffering are part of a fallen world. But we don't know enough, frankly, to make us content or to answer the questions for everybody else in the time of breakdown. But what we do know is that these experiences of breakdown often become, when yielded to God, breakthroughs. They become seasons of ironic grace. And this is why, as we minister to one another in times of crisis, we are to be joyful in hope patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer. Being joyful in hope does not mean putting on a smiley face and glossing over suffering. It means being one of those steady people that folks in crisis can lean on. As you lean on God, because they don't know how to lean on him. They just hurt too much. Being patient in affliction means being one of those people who aren't surprised when the grieving keeps going. When it goes up and it goes down and it turns and it goes on and on and they don't seem to be getting over it. Being a person who is patient in affliction means one who understands that loss is a long journey. And being faithful in prayer means being faithful in prayer. Not, I'll pray for you, but stopping there and praying. And when you think of them, when they come to your mind, asking God to mercifully do a work of healing in them beyond what we as caregivers can do. Let me say in closing that if you've ever wondered what you were supposed to do to care for someone in crisis, there's an app for that. And it's here in Romans 12. And you'll find these themes echoed many, many other places in this wonderful handheld device. And my prayer is that God is going to use you personally powerfully in the lives of others. In some season of need that may be out there right now or will be coming your way in the days ahead, I pray that God will help you to be one of those people that others find to have a penchant, not so much for safety as for sincerity, that you will be one of those people that can show them the love of Jesus. A love that is truly, beautifully, wonderfully, mercifully, sincere. May God add to us this blessing from the reading and reflecting upon his holy word. May he give us the power to live it out. Amen.